0: What is up, Bitcoiners? Welcome to an extremely special edition of FedWatch. This time, we are having a listener of the show on, a particularly OG listener of the show, Kenny Rowe, onto the show, and he's going to be hitting us with some questions that he has about the Fed, some questions that he has about macroeconomics, and we're going to do our best to answer them. Antle is going to be bringing a lot of the expertise in that field, but before we get into the show, let's talk about our sponsor. This is Paxful. Paxful is one of the largest P2P ecosystems out there for Bitcoin. Paxful is essentially a website that connects Bitcoin to any other payment option out there. And this is really key for Bitcoin's success. It's those trading pairs of Bitcoin. And Paxful not only has a ton of like long tail currencies, but they also have gift cards. They also have any kind of creative value system that you could trade for Bitcoin, they have that and it makes it really accessible for people who don't have a bank account to get a hold of of Bitcoin and and get a part of the digital economy. So go check out Paxful, paxful.com backslash podcast and see all the amazing ways that you can be a part of the P2P ecosystem. Without further ado, let's just intro Kenny. Kenny, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Thanks. Well, guys, thank you very much for having me on. I've been in the crypto space since I guess like 2013, 2014 as sort of like a casual observer. My first real fun experience with Bitcoin is I took a, a dollar bill and $10 worth of Bitcoin on a QR code. And I stuck it on a telephone pole outside my house and put it on Reddit. And I just said, which one is going to go first? And it ended up being like a citywide scavenger hunt, trying to find this Bitcoin somewhere on this telephone pole. And that was a really fun and interesting experience for me. And that's kind of how I got really much into Bitcoin First, as sort of like an interesting idea and then more later into payments. Yeah. So that's a little bit about me. And since I've been watching the show, I've had just had so many more questions that I was hoping to answer to get answered from you guys. So thank you very much for having me on and hopefully we'll have a good conversation.
2: Nice to meet you, Kenny. So are you in the San Francisco area? How, how did you meet Christian?
1: I'm in, I'm actually in Seattle. So Christian's, one of his best buddies is also here from Seattle and Christian came out for one of his like talks. And then we met in person that way.
0: Ansel knows David very well. Ansel is a crypto listener. Yeah. So David Hoffman at Trustless State introduced us. Yeah, that's how we met.
2: I see. I see. All right. Should I introduce what we're doing here, Christian?
0: Yeah, let's get into it.
2: Okay. So yeah, Kenny gave us some questions and, you know, we want to increase our kind of audience participation back and forth with us and our guests and and the show the content so we thought hey let's let's do a nice Q&A episode that we can maybe redo in the future with other people or with other questions from you guys and so let's we wanted to i guess kick it off here with Kenny and let's go what what do we got first
1: all right, it's kind of starting with some of the basics. So we all have this, I think, intuition that maybe the Fed isn't quite working the way it was intended to. And we probably, most of the listeners of this show know that the Fed was, was created in 1913. So it wasn't the entire history of the country or even the monetary policy. So the first question I have is, you know, what was the Fed doing in 1913? What was it created to address? And I assume it was working when it was first originally created. So what was it doing back then when it was working?
2: Well, it was, it's arguable if if it was working, they pretty immediately, they started blowing a bubble and that's what crashed there in the Great Depression in 1929. But no, it was, it was originally created to be a lender of last resort and to provide, I guess, like a trusted backstop to bank runs and liquidity Crises because in what was it, 1907, there was a big panic. And JP Morgan, the biggest banker at the time of, you know, still the JP Morgan Bank, he stepped in personally to backstop these bank runs and these liquidity crises that were happening in New York and around the country. So, and then a little bit later, like a few months later, he actually bought up a failing company in Tennessee. It was like the Tennessee coal company. So he put a lot of his personal wealth on the line to backstop the financial system or the economy. And then they said, well, why don't we launch an investigation in the Congress and see if we can come up with a new central bank idea? Of course, then that's famously the, the, a bunch of bankers got together and met at Jekyll Island down here in Georgia, right? About, I would say 30 miles away from where I'm living right now. And they met in secret, and they came up with this idea for the the Federal Reserve, and it got passed a couple years later through Congress. So that's how the Fed was created. A great book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, if listeners want to go and read that book, it'll change your worldview, I guarantee you, on that one.
0: Hey, Antle, just to kind of add on to that, like, what in terms of like legal definitions what exactly is the fed because it's not just like a, a government agency it's something very specific
2: well yeah they say famously it's not federal and it's not a reserve so there's it's a semi private bank that is there they it's a private shareholders out there that hold stake in this big Federal Reserve Bank. And they're supposed to be, have a reserve, right? Hold the gold for the country or whatever to be able to step in and backstop the economy during these crises. But they really don't. They just kind of create the accounting units to backstop the economy.
1: So on printed money, it says Federal Reserve Note, but also the Federal Reserve is not a mint. So why does it say Federal Reserve Note on, you know, printed currency?
2: Oh, well they took over They took over issuance of the paper currency when they were created. And I'm not a currency expert, that's for sure. But I know that, you know, it originally said when they started printing in 1914, I think was their first issuance, and said this was redeemable for gold in Washington, DC, or any branch of the Federal Reserve Bank at the time. And that stayed the same until 1934, the first issuance after we went off the gold standard it just said you know this is redeemable for lawful money at the federal reserve it didn't say gold anymore but yeah i don't know i think the treasury can still issue things legally but the federal reserve usually does that is does that answer the question or i could go into some of the other history like behind like what what it was like before the fed yeah please do so before the Civil War, there was a period where there was like no laws. So the the Fed Reserve is actually the third national bank of the United States. And it was 1920-something where the second national bank was closed down. And then there was a period between then and the Civil War where there, it was called the wildcat banking era or free banking era, where banks would... Just issue their own paper currency. Of course, they were all redeemable for five dollars or a dollars of gold or silver in the bank, but uh, mostly were regional banks. So, like a Bank of New York could issue these notes, but you wouldn't want to be in Louisiana using currency or paper notes from a bank in New York because you would never be able to turn it in for the real stuff. But th- that was that's called the wild cap banking era. After that, during the Civil War, they created a national, what was it? Man, I can't remember the name of the act now, but they they created an act where they made a banking system, like a national banking system, just shy of what a Federal Reserve system would be. So before the Federal Reserve, it wasn't like we went from free banking to the Federal Reserve, but no, the Civil War to the Federal Reserve there was like a system of national banks that had to be licensed and registered they had to have a reserve ratio of 90% i believe it was so it, they could have some fraction reserve but very little only 10% and then that lasted until the Fed
1: came about hmm. all right so when we when you think about the Fed itself do you think how how self aware is is the Fed do you, do you think they know what it is is sort of going on or or do they sort of have a vision in mind In a in a sort of an ideology, are they ideologically driven, or are they sort of more practical? Maybe that's a better way to 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 describe it.
2: They're they're (laughs) self aware to the extent that like the top people know that they don't know at this point. But I think uh, uh, for many years they thought that their models were correct. Like Christian and I have even uh, talked about this recently from the Jackson Hole speech, where they're like, okay, well we were trying to figure out unemployment, maximum employment. U star, this like natural maximum employment, but it wasn't working out. So they just kept adjusting the variable to to make their equation equal out. Right. And so they, they still are holding on to some vestiges, but I think the top people know that it's not really working and they're kind of struggling right now to know what the system is and they're learning at the same pace we are. Jeff Schneider, one of the great, you know, guys that we've actually interviewed here on Fedwatch, he has been pioneering rediscovering the euro dollar system and how the the system actually works and I think this kind of awareness is seeping into the fed about as quickly as it's seeping into the rest of us. So I think that's pretty interesting.
1: Hmm. And so do you think, think in like official communications, like you mentioned from, from the conferences they have in Jackson Hole and other places, yeah. do you think the language that they are using is becoming more direct or is it still yeah. this Fed speak obscure what the real meaning is, don't spook the market?
2: I think it's pretty plain language these days. Powell is, Christian famously called him a straight shooter on our mm-hmm. one of our shows. And yeah, I think that he is, the the jargon is, Pretty low with Powell, but it has been. Yeah, Fed speak came about in, I think it was Volcker, maybe it was the chairman before Volcker, whoever that was. They have, I think they tried to mask this new euro dollar system that they k- kind of thought they knew what was going on, but they didn't quite know. And they were trying to disguise it with some jargon. And also, they didn't want to say, we're going to print money in the old days because that would have caused some sort of bank run or a panic, right? So they had to disguise what they were doing in jargon so that you would have to soberly analyze what they're saying. And so there's, that's kind of where FedSpeak came about. But I think FedSpeak has really lessened a lot over the last two chairmen,
1: Yellen and Powell. And do, do, you, think it's, do you think it's important for, for normal average Americans to be paying attention to what it is that Powell is saying on a semi-regular basis? probably not. No,
2: I I think, man, that's, that's a, I mean, I don't, I think it's important for me and for investors of sound money. Like I've been a gold bug for decades before Bitcoin and now I'm a, a Bitcoiner. So I think it's very important to listen to what Powell says and to try to understand for yourself what is going on because that's how you invest, right? What makes good investment Strategy is to try to evaluate what's going on, but for most people, I don't think I don't think so because they they're just going to work, they're having their family or not, or they're going to the pub after work and you know going on Tinder, swiping right or left or whatever the case is, and they don't really care. Should they? Probably, but will they? Are they able to? Probably not, and they shouldn't have to be. Right? We shouldn't have to convince a majority of people to adopt Bitcoin, right? A majority of people are laggards. They will just get along. That's that's why this micro strategy thing is so huge and why the Paul Tudor Jones thing is so huge recently because it says that the leaders, the thought leaders are the ones that are adopting Bitcoin. And the other 80% that really don't ever think about money or maybe 95%, I don't know, they, they'll they just follow where the, the leaders take them. Does that answer the question?
0: Let me jump yeah, totally. in too. So Kenny, I feel like people should be paying attention, but they're not. And the fact that they should be, and the fact that good investors should be paying attention to what this organization is saying is kind of like shows what's wrong with our system. Like in reality, a good sound monetary system would enable people to just go about their business and do their trade and not have to pay attention to this organization or what this man has to say. And, you know, they could make good economic decisions. But now you have to read the tea leaves in order to make good economic decisions and to be ahead of the curve and not to get hurt. So like, that's exactly what's wrong with the system as it is. But yeah, I mean, people should be aware of this stuff. Like it's in plain English. And no one pays attention. That's the problem. And and if they did pay attention, they'd be like, wow, like this is messed up. Like there should be a system that we don't have to be paying attention to all the time and reading the tea leaves to figure out what's happening.
2: That's a great point. It's very inefficient to have to worry about the money and spend your time learning about this stuff. You should go be productive and build things and make things and not waste your time with the financialization of the world. Yeah, that's a very good point. So Should they? It depends on how you look at it. If in a, in a really, in the best case scenario, no, they shouldn't, they shouldn't have to, but right now they probably should because it's about to get ugly out
1: there. So this next question, I'm going to bring it in the circle a bit. So that was sort of really broad general Americans. Now let's bring it into CK, what you were talking about with, or, or maybe those micro strategists, those, those thought leaders. And so one of them is clearly, you know, hard money Bitcoin, but there are other hard money. let's just call general crypto folks out there. Are those folks paying attention? Do they need to be thinking more about what the Fed is doing and saying?
0: Crypto people, I would say in general, pay attention more. Bitcoiners pay attention the most. But yeah, I, I personally think like people in the Ethereum community, a lot of these folks, like they need to be paying attention to what's going around just because, like, this is why Bitcoin, this is why crypto, this is why we want to come up with a permissionless system. So, like, if they don't even know, like, what's going on and what we're trying to replace, like, how do you know that you're building something that's improving? it?
2: I, I just think they people need to start with an understanding of what we have, an understanding of the technology, and things will flow from there. I think people, like, I know when I first got in and excited about this space, I was a blockchain person too. I remember the first time the blockchain and decentralization hit, clicked for me, I was like, oh my God, you can build so much stuff on this. And so I, I spent the next probably year trying to think of a good idea that I could build with blockchain, right? But that is distracting to the actual understanding of the system because what, what helped me understand that those things won't work <laughs> is that you, you, know, you have to dive into the nitty gritty of the current system, why the current system functions the way it does, and how this technology enables a new system or a new type of asset. So yeah, they, people need to get down to basics.
1: So Ron Paul is, is famous for saying, and the Fed, right? What would that kind of look like either in practice, or is what he's saying there separate state and money? Or is he saying something slightly different, and, and which is sort of more important?
2: Oh yeah, that's a good parallel you draw there with separation of money of state equals end the Fed. Yeah, I think it does. I think that it's likely to happen in our lifetimes, people on this call. So it, it probably won't happen in the next decade, but it probably will happen in the next 20 years, I would say. And we got in a little bit of trouble on our last episode. Steve Van Meter. Uh, we asked him a question about what's going to happen ten years out or twenty years out. He's like, anybody that says they know what's going to happen more than five years out, they're fooling themselves. Nobody knows. Well, yes, but from a general like ebb and flow of history, you can say that most likely the dollar's days are numbered. Most likely, the you know, when you look forward a thousand years, is the Fed going to be there a thousand years from now? No. And so now let's step it back. You know, how long does it last? And I think it lasts for 10 to 20 more years. Uh, We can get into what that looks like. But when that happens, if it is a, if the Fed is ended because of a, a crisis in confidence in the Fed itself, then that's a positive for the dollar, unfortunately, because, you know, they'll be seen as being liberated from the overlords at the Fed. Now, if if the Fed is ended because of a government confidence issue, I think that's really bad for the dollar. And that could be, you know, we're talking revolution times. Does that answer the question?
1: Yeah, and I think so. Maybe just to pick at something or to, to poke at something you said there at the at the end, the government. So one thing we think about when it when we talk about the government, either the US government or any other government. In relation to currencies well how much debt did they have to issue in order to generate that currency or how much debt do they currently have in comparison to how much or how productive they are in this case gdp something like that and how much can that debt either surpass that ratio in the hundreds percent like we've seen something like japan running for the last 20 years is that the kind of crisis of government you're talking about like a debt crisis or just general crisis
2: I'm talking uh, about just a general crisis, a confidence crisis. Like we've kind of started to see recently here in the U.S. with the riots in the street and the extreme left wing versus the extreme right wing and, and all of these things uh, lack, quote unquote, lack of law and order, just confidence in the government breaking down. Now, if if that is, if that is the general condition out there that people are starting to question the government... And then you take the Fed out of it because, see, the people will transfer some of their trust to the Fed that oh even though the government is bad, at least we have the Fed and the Fed is going to protect us a little bit. But if you have this crisis and confidence in the government and then somehow you end the Fed, I don't know what that looks like, you know, that could be very, very bad for the dollar, catastrophic for the dollar. So.
1: So also on the dollar, I've heard people describe a transition away, like a natural transition being something like a phase change, meaning it might happen slowly at first, then all of a sudden, either is a, is a loss of confidence or as following like herd behavior because other people are using it in the sense of either Bitcoin or other currencies that might cause the loss of confidence in the national currency how important is unit of account like pricing things in some alternative is that critical or is that just sort of a nice to have when you're thinking about using something else for day-to-day transactions
2: well unit of account is a kind of misunderstood i believe when as it pertains to being a world reserve currency it's not it's like something that you can dictate because so the world reserve currency is the currency that has the largest trade network, basically. And if you look back through history, I've been recently doing some research on this. So like the Spanish dollar into the Dutch gilder into the British pound and all of these things. So a world reserve currency gets displaced. First off, it never hyperinflates. Okay. A world reserve currency that as far as I can see, doesn't hyperinflate. So we're kind of... That's an interesting factoid to, to consider. But they also are replaced by a larger trade network. And so either the trade network that is existing under the, say, the Spanish dollar breaks down. So at the end of the Spanish dollar, you had, they lost the low countries with the Netherlands, and they lost Naples, and they lost some of their, they had the Iberian unity or what, union, I think it was, where the Portugal and Spain were combined. And so that was a very large trade network when you combine Portugal and Spain together at that time. But then that ended, I believe in like 1830 or sorry, 1630, that union ended. So you split the entire trade network in half and they lost the Netherlands, which is the gateway to Europe. So their their trade network was shrinking, right? And then you bring in the British pound where their trade network is expanding. And so that's, when, when you look at how is Bitcoin going to take over, how is the dollar going to decline? Well, you need to have an expanding network somewhere that that will replace the dollar. Gold's network is zero, zero. Gold will never replace the dollar because it has to be an expanding network. So yeah, that's why I say that slowly everything will leak over to Bitcoin. Bitcoin's network will expand while while the dollar denominated economy is shrinking credit is contracting, and people just move over to Bitcoin. That's what I see.
1: Do you think that growth is likely to be exponential? Bitcoin's growth? Specifically, yes, but just any, any surplanting trade network, yeah. is, is the cycle of decline and rise, is it linear or is it super linear? I think it's punctuated. So like you, you have, like
2: I said, with the Spanish dollar, you had the loss of the low country. Well, first you had the, Mm -hmm. this Portugal breaking off again, and then you had 10 years and then you had the loss of the low countries. So that is how I kind of see it. Not punctuated, not linear, not exponential, but, and it could be, it could be staved off maybe even like, so there's nothing that happens for 50 years. Well, we're kind of going to be in like a 50 year dead period where there is no growth, nothing's happening. Of course, that's probably not going to happen with Bitcoin, because now we do have an alternative where to find that growth. And we're, you know the, the entrepreneurs that start businesses around Bitcoin infrastructure, around Bitcoin, they are going to grow and influence. You know, that, that's what the market works, is it, it rewards those, the types of actions that per, produce growth and stuff like that. They, they, those entrepreneurs get more influence in the future because they were right. Because they did good work in the past, and so the Bitcoin entrepreneurs are going to grow in influence the Bitcoin ecosystem is going to grow in influence, and so in that respect, it could be exponential bitcoin's rise could be exponential, but i don 't know. I, I think the dollar's decline will be punctuated
1: so let's let 's look at that a little bit too. so what are some either likely or things that you maybe thought about punctuation marks in either a, a global USD system mm-hmm. that could potentially Break it, or at least spell out its sort of foreseeable decline that it would be a less less uh, there would be some other network that's larger like how would the network of the United States trade break up?
2: well first you had to stop the growth of it, and I think that kind of stopped in two thousand and eight, maybe two thousand and one through two thousand and eight, so it was growing dramatically if you look at like credit expansion in the '90s with Japan and, and some of these other Asian tigers and stuff. And I mean, this was all a dollar created boom. Uh, dollar credit was expanding. And then you have the dot-com where it slowed down. Maybe there was some, a little bit of a death rattle of growth with the real estate bubble. But then in 2008, that stopped. So that that's like the first step is to stop the growth of the system. And then the next step might be for countries for some sort of split of the U S like if California broke off from the U S that might cause a confidence in the dollar in the trade network of the dollar, the dollar trade network would shrink. Maybe, maybe some sort of conflict in the South China sea with, you know, that's becoming a larger trade network over there with all of those countries being lifted out of poverty in the last 50 years. Right. So that trade network is growing in relation to the West and so there could be a China-centered trade network. I don't I don't personally believe that, but that's possible. That's what I think. Okay.
1: All right. So let's bring it back to the Fed. So, you know, I've heard you speak to this often, and I think you're right, that the Fed is not creating inflation. They would very much like to, but they can't. And we've sort of grown up thinking that the Fed, especially through Greenspan, has immense power and influence and should be guarded very carefully and they they only do things when it's you know quantitative meaning they know exactly what to do when it happens that sort of thing so how how can you what are some metaphors that we can use to understand why what the fed is doing with quantitative easing is so ineffective and so like almost almost nothing is happening with with that program what are some other ways we can think about it in terms of Analogies or metaphors? Well, I've
2: used the metaphor for reserves of casino chips. So, like the banks can, they're selling their treasuries, and yes, they're the what they're getting in return in these reserves at the Fed. But the, these aren't like liquid dollars; they're actually casino chips that, that are denominated in dollars. So they're, they're the casino chips of the, the reserve casino chips or something that would be something that would help people maybe understand why reserves aren't money because reserves are only good in the casino of the fed. Not, They're not good in the outside broader market, right? They're actually taking assets and collateral off the market and replacing them with casino chips that you can't use anywhere. It's just a balance sheet mechanism to make these banks look solvent, right? And another analogy that I just came up with the other day for describing the euro dollar system in relation to the Fed. Okay. So, because I think a lot of people have a hard time understanding why the Fed is not central to the dollar. So, this is what I came up with. So, imagine you have American football and it's the NFL and it becomes very popular and then it starts expanding and ex- expands into colleges, right? And then it expands into Canada and then maybe Europe and they have all these other leagues. And then the NFL. Commissioner comes out and says, Oh, we're gonna change the rules. We're gonna do this and that. Well, the Canadian Football League is like, we're playing football, but it's not we're not by your rules anymore. You don't have control over us. You're no longer central. You started being central to this game back in the, you know, the sixties or whatever. You were central to the dollar. But then as we grew, the the game grew outside of the borders of the Fed, outside of the borders of the NFL. And now the NFL commissioner has no say over what the broader idea of football is anymore, American football, at least. So is that a good analogy, do you think?
1: Yeah. And and I think if you you maybe stretch it a bit and let's say, all right, so now the Fed or the commissioner is like, you know what I want to do? I want to create, you know, I want to, I want it, what I want to do is I'm going to create you know, some paper like gift cards. I'm going to create some gift cards and I'm going to give them to all the team owners because attendance is down. Attendance is way down, but I want to make sure that if you look at their balance sheet, you know, all the teams are solvent. They're doing just fine, you know, and, it doesn't change the game. It doesn't change the fact that people don't want to come to the to the to the stadium. The stadiums, the population is still going down, and the balance sheets are still going up. But there's nobody coming. Like, is that like a a way you could kind of think about why there's no inflation? Why there's no butts in the seat? Yeah, that's a, that's a, a real good one. I think that's pretty accurate. The, the
2: The problem, yes, is that the the fans aren't coming. the The banks aren't lending. There's no credit. Expansion. So yes, you can you can uh, give the gift cards or, in my analogy, you can give the casino token, but that doesn't make people expand credit and lend. So yeah, it's a great analogy.
0: And and I think really what it comes down to is reality meeting up against what the Fed wants to happen, and they're trying to do stuff to alter reality, and for the most part, reality is just ignoring them. (laughs) Like. Like people, the economy is not growing. Like it's a fact. Like, and there's nothing they can do to get people to organize to start growing. Like they can't figure out that mass psychology game.
2: Yeah, and what's worse is if they admit that, if it becomes apparent, you know? Because right now, they can still kind of, oh, we did this and, oh, there was the pandemic. That's what actually is causing all this problem. That's why we can't have growth is because the pandemic, it's a crisis, emergency. So they, they always come up with something else like the subprime. Oh, subprime that pricked the bubble. So now we're not going to have that at this time. We we learned our lesson. So, I mean, people have said this, that every time the Fed does not see it coming and eventually I mean, the worst thing would be if people just lost confidence completely in the Fed. I mean, I don't know. We we just talked about how if they lose confidence in the Fed and the Fed goes away, that's actually positive for the dollar. It's probably positive for the economy. So it's scary for people to lose confidence in the dollar or in the Fed, sorry, but it's probably would turn out well.
1: So the meme that we all saw, like just after, let's say March and April, money printer go burr, right? how much of that is just does the fed love that meme Do they want people to think that like yeah, are we just that's what I've been thinking
0: yeah,
1: right it, so what what would happen if if all the bitcoiners listening to this were basically like you know i'm actually i don't care what the fed says they they can't even if they wanted to it's quite apparent that they can't and so the only thing i'm going to pay attention to is is what like what can the Fed do or what might the Fed end up doing or Congress for that matter to actually create real inflation?
2: Well, yeah, I think your point there about the Burmese meme is, is great. That Burmese might mark the pinnacle of that line of thought, right? That the Fed actions are inflationary. And now people are starting to understand that, yeah, the Fed can't create inflation. The Fed is in, impotent out there. All they can do is massage people's expectations. That's about it. The next great meme would be for people to say, make something happen, Fed. Come on. We dare you to do something. Make something happen. And then they couldn't do it. Right? What, would they, what would they do to, to make inflation? They can't. So what was the rest of your question?
1: <laughs> well, I think people might realize this and the Fed might also realize that people are realizing Right? Yes. It's not the end of the game. There's a there is a counter move to that, which I've heard you allude to in addition like other podcasts. So more specifically, if the Fed can't create inflation by, you know, moving poker chips around, Mm -hmm. what's something that they could do, or maybe a better way is to say it, what's something the government can do to actually, you know, ratchet that lever if it's becoming clear that this thing isn't working?
2: Yeah, you're alluding to MMT, modern monetary theory so it's possible and i think though that we would see it coming many years in advance because it's not something the system the banking system is not something that you can change overnight yes the fed might change a policy overnight but that doesn't mean that the way that the the way that the economy works is going to change overnight so we would see it for a long time maybe at least 2 years We'd have to prepare for it. There would have to be some sort of committees in Congress, some working group with the Fed. So slowly we would learn what they're thinking and what they're about to do. And we would see it in the bond yields, right? We'd see it in the bond curves. We'd see it in the value of the dollar in general. We'd probably see it in the value of the stock market and gold and Bitcoin. So, you know, the, the market isn't efficient, So to speak, I I don't think I don't believe in the efficient market hypothesis, but it is it has more information. It knows more than you do, and it knows if this is likely to happen in the near term. And the prices around the world are saying that it's not likely to happen anytime soon.
0: So I have a question for you, Ansel, and maybe Kenny, you can add on to it. But like, why are we seeing, you know, asset prices? real estate prices, all of those things increasing if there isn't, you know, quote-unquote burr? Like, why are all these things skyrocketing despite fundamentals essentially not making any sense anymore?
2: That's a really hard question to answer other than to say, like Steve Van Meter said in our last episode, that money will flow to where it's best treated or where it has the best yield. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy for a large degree that you know, people will buy Tesla, and Tesla goes up, and more people buy Tesla, and Tesla goes up. This is a thing that we've talked about in Bitcoin for a long time, being a Veblen good, right? So, a Veblen good has a backwards demand curve. A usually, demand curve demand goes down as price goes up, but in a Veblen good, demand goes up as price goes up. And we're seeing that kind of in stocks, and saw that probably in property. I, I don't know if I if there's a big property bubble right now. A lot of a lot of places are going down big time in value, but that is to be expected from some of the stuff that we have seen out there with the virus and things. So yeah, I don't know how to explain it other than that. We could dive into that on another episode after I think about it more. Kenny, what do you think?
1: Well, it it definitely seems okay. So the the question is okay. Why why do we see some things inflating and not others? What wouldn't it be? Well, if there was broad based inflation. Then we would see it all over. The fact that there isn't is not to say that there isn't. I mean, it's almost by definition not inflation because inflation is broad-based. So if there's something happening that's not broad, it's some other reason than inflation. Just sort of like logically, right? And so you can look for those reasons. Either it could be income disparities, or you know, income, not necessarily income, but like as the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, the rich have to spend their money on, or the rich want to spend their money on something. And the things that they spend their money on tend to inflate. That's one explanation. But we could go down the list of other explanations that would explain specific places at which you would find price appreciation. But, the, but a gallon of milk is roughly the gallon of milk, right? Like Unless all of it's going up, it's not inflation.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. The Cantillon effect is what people have latched onto. People have learned about in the last few years. And so, yes, people will say inflation doesn't move through the economy evenly, right? It hits, the prices go up where it enters, where new money enters, and then it trickles its way down. But it has to trickle its way down, right? The, like you said, prices can be, can go up and down for many, many reasons, I I said on our show that prices can go up for deflationary reasons because deflation will crush producers, which will limit the supply and the price will go up. It'll be temporary most likely, but you know, prices can go up or down for a multitude of different reasons. The only way that you know that it's inflation is if the broad based, like you said, the broad based prices go up.
0: So, I think we're kind of getting a little bit to the end of our time. Kenny, do you want to have a couple more questions to wrap it up? Yeah, yeah. I get, okay. So, let's look at what uh, a Bitcoin world looks like, right? Maybe in
1: 10, 15, 20 years. Doesn't really matter. But what a Bitcoin might, world might look like, we have got a pretty hard, pretty hard cap, right? So, we don't have a lot of elasticity in the system to deal with some of these shocks. There's not going to be, if there's no Fed or there's no JP Morgan, how would a Bitcoin economy create elasticity? for just sort of variable things that are going to happen.
2: Yeah, there I don't know if there will be a silver to bitcoin's gold, but if there is the the elasticity might come from that other token. But most likely it will be something where we trust a central party like a Coinbase or something like that then and, and their token on top of that or a government could issue their own token that's backed by bitcoin. The traditional weights, I believe, are like 40%. That was, that's what it was before we went off the gold standard in a lot of places, was 40% backing of currencies by gold. So maybe we'd have a 40% backing by Bitcoin in the future. That's possible. But I, I don't know. This, this, we kind of have talked about this a little bit in the past, and I, I'm, I think you have better ideas about this than I do. <laughs>
1: I think th- certainly a lot of things are, are possible, but I do think like you've alluded to in some of the other podcasts that sort of a Bretton Woods 2.0 summit type thing might also occur, which might also frame this from a, at least from a sovereign perspective, as well as sort of like a decentralized position. If we do have something like that, where there's sort of a general framework agreed to by at least enough people that are doing trade, maybe not everybody, and then Bitcoin is it's sort of collateral of choice, let's call it like that. Is that a separation of state and money or is it a partnership?
2: No, I don't know. I, a partnership or what, what, what were the two options?
1: Just separation. Like this is, is something like that, does that mean Bitcoin is separated from the state and now money is uh-huh. independent?
2: Well, I mean, governments are, they're pretty dumb for the most part, but they're pretty smart when it comes to like existential Threats and existential crises. So, they'll probably see that coming and start buying Bitcoin as reserves before that would happen. So, Bitcoin would have to become reserves of governments before Bretton Woods. I don't yes. think they would do a Bretton Woods before, like, the US government owns 50,000 Bitcoins at least, or whatever the total would be 100,000 probably. Yeah, buying a Bitcoin by the governments was, is going to happen before a Bretton Woods. And we'll probably see that coming. Like there'll be two or three more cycles before then. And the market cap of Bitcoin will be in the double digit trillions or something like that. And uh, yeah. then they will, it will be liquid. Then it'll be liquid enough for them to buy and not really affect the price too much.
0: Can I jump in too? like, personally, I actually don't like the idea of Brentwoods 2.0. Cause I just don't think it's going to happen like that. I think that like if we get to the stage where you know there's going to be a new global reserve currency like countries won't be deciding that for us it's going to be individuals making those decisions kind of independently and ultimately bitcoin is an open source system and it's a permissionless system so people will like there's going to be two systems and one of them's going to be growing and people are just going to be opting into the other system and then gradually then suddenly you know we have a new system i mean that's kind of how i see it kind of emerging every time we talk to one of these fed insiders they're like there is no other system to the dollar the dollar is deeply flawed but there's nothing else and i think that's what bitcoin is growing into and it's you know people don't necessarily see it growing into that but that's the trajectory that i see and again i don't think it's going to be a like okay let's go under bitcoin it's just going to be like oh shoot everyone's using bitcoin
2: I got two things real quick. For the listeners, we should have introduced what Bretton Woods was or is. So Bretton Woods was, a after World War II, all the major economies got together, leaders of the major economies, and decided to peg everything to the dollar and the dollar would be pegged to gold. So if we were to see a Bretton Woods 2.0, it would be like some sort of revaluation of all currencies against a central asset like Bitcoin, or maybe gold would play in there, but I don't think it would. So that's that. Okay. So the second thing is that gold standards or reserve currencies under gold, they were all based on gold. So it's not like the, well, I guess, or silver, but there was precious metals backing them. And there was no real difference between the gold sitting in the vaults of in London or in Lisbon. It's all gold. But the, we say that there was a reserve currency status for the pound or the Spanish dollar or whatever. So it's, it's weird to think of how Bitcoin would fit into that because it, is there going to be zero control of any money from the governments? I think that's great. I, I, wish for, I hope for that day, but I don't think it, it's going to come anytime soon. So there's going to have to be some sort of derivative that they back by Bitcoin, like what Kenny was saying earlier. And we're going to have to have the U.S. Bitcoin coin, whatever that is.
0: All right, guys. I think this was a a pretty fun show. We dug into a lot of good topics. Kenny, thank you for preparing all these questions. Kenny, why don't you plug yourself where people can find you? And yeah, any last thoughts?
1: Sure. Yeah. I'm at Kenny Rowe on Twitter. I also work on a project called Urbit, which is like a personal server thing. It's it's very cool. Check it out. U-R-B-I-T. We love Bitcoin. We love crypto. So, yeah. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. Again, thank you for coming on. You guys can find the show at Bitcoin Magazine. You can find me at CK underscore Snarks. You can find Ansel at Ansel Lindner. And make sure to check out the Bitcoin Dictionary. Hold it up straight so people can see it, Ansel. Yeah, the Bitcoin Dictionary. I think all three of us have the Bitcoin Dictionary, and if you don't, you're missing out. So check out the Bitcoin Dictionary, check out Kenny, check out Bitcoin Magazine, peace. Thanks, Kenny. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin podcast network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.